Amen. Good to be able to worship with you all this morning. As we gather for worship, it is indeed uh, just a sweet thing for us to be able to do as we've been celebrating the Advent season. We've been thinking about all that Christ has accomplished through his coming into the world. And one of the things that's very tempting for us to do is just to say, that happened, that was nice, let's just move on. In fact, our culture moves on very quickly. You take down everything very quickly and it is put out of your mind. And yet, as New Year's rolls in, we often are thinking about what's next. This entire next year, how can I build the plans for what I'm going to do to become a better person, to have goals for my business, have goals for my home, for my church, whatever it may be. This is very natural and even right for us to do, to think about the future, to start to think about what is next. In fact, this is actually built within the Advent season is to think about Christ came, but he's coming again. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the future coming of Jesus to be reminded that we're not just left to think about the future on our own, anything you might want to think, but in fact, our minds are shaped and formed to say, you don't need to think like everyone else. You can think the way the Bible teaches you to think. And that, in, f- in fact, impacts you greatly today, the way you think about the future. We do think about the future very often. We do think about everything that is coming. We think about our goals financially, the house we want to buy, the next house we want to buy, our college goals if you're coming up through high school, the things that you want to do and see in your home, the things you want to see in your business, the things you're trying to work on with your kids. We have these goals that you're constantly working towards, and this isn't just a random thing. This is something God placed within you to say, where am I heading and why? And we are not left without information about what to think about the future, about what goals we should have, about where we should be placing our minds in these areas. And yet often we act almost like we are. We start to think, about these things, and we become uh, somewhat hopeless about it, to start to think, well, it's just up to me to figure that out, like that's coming, but that's so distant and vague, I don't know what to do with it. And there are many, many reasons we do this. And in our world, there's things that kind of combat our thinking about the future and hope, because we look at the world around us, and it is rather bleak at times. Uh, more in other areas of the world than even our own, but even as we look at our world, there are certain hopes we have that just aren't lining up. You start to look at even just the way that our society is structured. There's things that maybe we thought were heading the right direction that aren't heading that way anymore. You say, why? Why would our culture abandon some of the fabrics of society that reflect biblical morals? I liked where that was heading, but it's not heading there anymore. Why? It becomes rather discouraging. And you start to look at even just the divergence in political views, the way you set up a government, and it can become overwhelming and discouraging. You look at even the way that people interact with each other, it starts to become discouraging at times. Is this the way life really is? And we look out at all of these things, and it can get us to a place where we start to become very, very discouraged to the point that we even find ourselves cynical about it all. I don't care anymore. I'm just going to hold on and wait till the end, but right now I'm just kind of hunkering down. And even if we think that this is not where we're at, oftentimes we don't realize just how 
devastating. This attitude of cynicism really is, especially within the church. And many of the different authors would push back regularly on this to say, this is not the way you're meant to think. And yet this sneaks in, in this cynical attitude. We start to begin that there's a loss of belief in truth in general. We start to say, this is so difficult, I don't know what to believe anymore, even when the Bible is fairly clear. We start to believe that there's a loss of hope in the world around us, our society, even in our own life. What's the point? I've tried this before. What's the point? And even in the way we look at authority, God has placed all authorities there, and we see those things breaking down, and we say, it is so messy and ugly, I don't even want to think about it. We put it out of our minds, saying, I'm not going to respect that authority, that's for sure. And we come back to it again and again. And this is that cynical attitude that starts to slowly set into our hearts. And yet, as the Bible talks about the future, it doesn't allow us to set into this type of place. In fact, it gives us this picture of the future that makes us very different than the rest of the world that is allowed to go to this place of depression and cynicism and discouragement that says, it doesn't even matter anymore. This is not where Scripture leaves us. So this morning we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 15 as the Apostle Paul looks at this picture of the future, especially with us, our resurrected bodies, and what does this mean for us, and how does it fit into God's redemptive plan. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be looking at the later half of this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 where the Apostle Paul is giving us this picture of our resurrected bodies. So if you're able and willing, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We'll see what the Apostle Paul has to tell us here. This is God's Word. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? Victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's do pray as we come before God's word in this passage. Father God, we do thank you that you have not left us without anything said about the future. Lord, you are gracious to us. You have written many things for us to look to, to hold to. And Lord, we pray as we come before your word this morning, would you give us humble hearts? Would you help us to receive your word, to ponder these things, to meditate on them, to orient our lives around them? Lord, 
we are indeed in deep need of you to direct and guide us as your church, as your people, and we pray that you would be gracious to us, that your spirit would help us in these things, to shape us, to form us. Lord, we do pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Even as we think of these words of the Apostle Paul and we think of some of what I just mentioned in the fabric of our society being very difficult, we recognize that it is indeed true. The way we think about our present, our future really does impact our present. The way we start to think about these things really does impact us. Uh, I, in my wife's family, there are many, many nurses, and one of the things that uh, you start to hear very often is just the way that different medical conditions can really impact you. And one of the, the uh, my sister-in-law, uh, she is a hospice nurse, and so she has a very hard job. Oftentimes, she is thinking with people in this moment about how do you live today when you really are at the end. There's not a lot of hope in the prognosis of what is coming for them. And one of the things that's very fascinating as you listen to her talk about these situations of how do you enter in with these people. And it's really very challenging because one of the things she says is really you're just trying to make them as happy as you can right now to kind of ease their suffering as much as possible until the end. And this is indeed one of the temptations for us in life to say it feels rather bleak and hopeless. It feels rather bleak and hopeless and I'm just going to enter into this program of pain management because the world is so broken until Jesus comes back. In fact, I start to say, it doesn't really matter what goes on here. And yet, this is not how Scripture leads us. When we ask this question of how can we live with any hope in this world, the Bible does have an answer for us, that it has not left us to this place where we just think it's rather hopeless. 1 Corinthians 15 does teach us that we are not left in this world without hope. In fact, as we've just seen, the believer has been given a far more powerful hope than any level of cynicism or skepticism or unbelief that God can do anything practical in this world could ever, ever happen. So you start to look at these things, you say, is it actually possible that the grace of God can overcome that? And there is a level of belief in this, but it's to say, yes, astoundingly so, yes, God can overcome these things. The Apostle Paul is teaching about the future resurrection of our bodies, and this is not just some distant hope that says, well, that's going to be nice someday when that happens, but this just puts me in a program of waiting till that happens. In fact, he's saying the victory of God's redemptive plan is actually seen very practically through our resurrected body. And we're going to look at that this morning to say, what does that have to teach me about my hope in this life today? So there's a few things I'd like to frame this around, and there are a few things we could pull out of here, but we're going to look at three primarily. So firstly, as we think about our future res resurrected body, we can recognize that we do have hope that our resurrected body is imperishable. We do have hope that our resurrected body is imperishable. Let's look again at verses 50 through 53, see what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying. Let's stop there for the moment. As we hear these words and we think on this, it is rather... Interesting. Why does it matter that we're imperishable? It seems like a rather, well, I mean, that, that's common knowledge that we must be imperishable. But we recognize this is the, the culmination of everything that God was trying to do on the cross. That in fact, you could not enter into relationship with God himself. You could not be a member of the kingdom of God unless you were imperishable. We have a finiteness to us, we have a limitedness to us, and we actually have something about us that is far more significant. In fact, you look at the immortality, and that is something that everyone wants. You look at um, many, many of the uh, made-up stories about what is a villain really after? What is he willing to do anything for? Well, immortality. <laughs> He's going to kill almost half the world just to become immortal. That is not an unknown motivation for villains, but when you get to this idea of immortality and being imperishable, that is very, very different. And at the root of being imperishable is this eradication of sin, of brokenness, this eradication of everything that sin brought into the world, saying, you look at everything, and entropy becomes a very real thing, this idea that things just start to fall apart. From the day we're born, it's like we start to decompose a little bit. It's a rather daunting idea to think, my body's already starting to fall apart. And you start to get to this age, and it's like, if for a while, you don't actually believe it. And then as you guys get older, and I get older, and everyone gets older, you start to talk about, yeah, it's real. Death is coming for us all. And the world falls apart. For me, as I've been in construction, as I build something... I go back to it 10, 15 years later, you're like, this was beautiful when I built it. <laughs> and it's already needing fixing up. The houses that I built when I was in high school and college, I go back to Ben and I look at some of them and it's like, holy cow, man, like time was not easy on you. You guys need to put the paint on every year. What is happening? And we recognize just the weight of that. The moment something is new, it starts to wear. And it doesn't look the way it should anymore. And this is far more than just a general cause of science. In fact, there is something at the root of everything that happened in the world when Adam and Eve sinned. The ground will become harder to, to work. The earth also exhibits some of the impacts of sin. Our own hearts have this general rebellion against God. In fact, everything about God's good creation is in combat with him. And you see this everywhere. And we say, why does it matter that I'm going to have an imperishable body? Because God came to redeem it. God came to redeem it, to restore it, to make it new again. In fact, take away this aspect that sin brought in so powerfully to say, that is not actually going to fall apart anymore. It is going to be imperishable, eternal. It is going to last forever. Those things that I created to be good will indeed be good again. And at times we have gotten so discouraged about the nature of our world, we look at everything material in front of us and we say, 
even through all of church history, one of the things the Gnostics often thought was, well, it must be bad because I look out and it really seems bad. All the world in front of me, my flesh, in fact, I just want to get out of this body. And this came out of sayings from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 where he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? A very common way of thinking for us in the church to think, I just need to escape this world. I just need to be a spirit with God. I just need to get away. And yet that's not even what the Apostle Paul was hinting at there. One of the things that many Reformed theologians will argue this again and again is to say, what are we after? God is going to redeem and renew our physical bodies So what is it talking about that you must be spiritual? He's not saying a disembodied spiritual being that's just floating around in the ether. No, he's saying you will be completely dependent upon God's spirit. Living in a spiritual way, as the Apostle Paul often talks about. Do you walk in the natural way or in the flesh? Or do you walk in the spirit? This is not saying that your body will not be here. It is saying walk in the way God has made you to live in perfect fellowship with me. This is the way you are meant to live. This is the way you are meant to walk. And we are starting that work today. Put to death those old things. Live in the spirit. This work has already begun to say, walk in a spiritual way. Live in a spiritual way. This will be the way you're living for all of eternity in your resurrected body. That resurrected body is a very real thing. So we wait eagerly, as the Apostle Paul says just in the chapter early in 1 Corinthians. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Redemption. This language of redemption is full throughout Scripture to say, We're not throwing it away. It is being redeemed. It is often tempting to think that our hope is merely otherworldly. Yet it is this world that God has purposed himself to redeem. This is the redemptive plan. God's saying, sin entered this world and I will redeem it. I am coming for it. Notice our future hope is not just focusing on on me, my own eternal destiny, my own eternal plans and purposes, but it is saying, your kingdom come here. God, I'm aware of all that you're after in this great redemptive plan, and that is where I fit within God's redemptive plan. Mike Williams, one of the theologians that I studied in under seminary, said this. He says, our visions of the future say as much about our understanding of God as they do about our understanding of sin and redemption. And oftentimes as we think about the future, if we think about God as being kind of distant, impersonal, far away, we think of our sin as being abstract, not having to do much with what we do day to day, our lives will show that. The way we think about the future and about God and about sin and all the things we're talking about really impacts the way we live. If we allow ourselves to think that God is going to just redeem us separate from this world, we abstract the purposes of God and the purposes of our own life, and it becomes meaningless. 
worthless. What's the point if we've all of a sudden taken it out of everything that God has said he's going to do? We say, well, I don't actually want to do, have anything to do with your redemptive plan. I just kind of hope you just take me away. <laughs> Get me away from all this. It's too hard to work on this. It's too difficult. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to make it right. And this is a good place to be. Why? Because you serve a God who does know how to fix it, to make it right, to redeem it, to restore it. Far more difficult to do than to just say, I'm done with it, I'm moving on. Far more difficult to do. Uh, I remember uh, one of the companies that I worked for when I was doing construction, it was a pretty hard place to be. It had a very hostile, um, just, a, just a hard relationship with coworkers, just a, just a kind of a difficult um, culture around everything, pretty much everything that they did was just a hard culture. Uh, it's just foul language, just hard on one another. And so I've been in different companies, and it was a stark contrast in this place. And uh, one of the projects we were working on was building this cell tower, erecting it up on one of the buttes in Oregon. And so we're building the building and the cell tower itself. And so it's kind of on the side of this hill. And one of the things we'd have to often do is bring out different dump trucks because you had to haul in your junk and get it out of there. You couldn't really get a service to come do this. And so one day, they had everything going. And so the only truck left was the old kind of broken one. I was like, we're not going to take that one up there. And they're like, well, it's all we got, so let's take it up. So we get it up there and park it kind of on the side of the hill, and the brakes aren't working great on this thing, nothing's great on this thing, so we block everything under the tires. And as they start loading it with the forklift, um, as you can imagine, this thing pops over the bump, and the brake's not working, it starts flying down the hill. I'm like, well, it's just a crappy old truck, we need to get rid of it anyway. And all of a sudden, it's like, this is heading right for a brand new F-350. And just watching this, it's like, no, we can't stop it. <laughs> and Sure enough, it smashes right into that truck. And even though this is something, it's like I knew it was avoidable. I knew it was not something that I would do again, and I probably wouldn't have done again. And you go over it again and again in your head. This is what happened. And you head back into this culture, and everyone's pointing fingers and blaming. And it was just miserable to go to work for a while, thinking of, I have to go back and work with these guys. To look at them in the eyes to say, how do I continue to do my job in a place like this? And many of you know this type of feeling. You just want to get away from it. To say, I don't want anything to do with that life. I just want a different job. Much more difficult to live in a place like that to say, I will be a godly presence even in the midst of a very broken situation. I will be a godly presence even in the midst of a very, very broken situation and see redemption work. I'm not saying I'm perfect at that, but this is those types of moments to say, I don't want to be here. And you come again and again and again and be faithful in those moments and say, let me be a presence of God's redemptive work even in a company like that. And I guarantee you the moments that God worked through me to be patient and kind in the midst of everyone else pointing fingers and blaming showed them more of God's redemptive work than they've probably seen in a very long time. Now, I pray that God continues to use that work, and it is not final until God actually works in their hearts, but you recognize the importance of that type of work to say, it's miserable, I don't know the way to fix it, I don't even believe it's 
possible to fix a culture like that at times, I look at it. It is so broken in certain aspects of the construction industry, but where is God's redemptive purposes needed more than that? So there is indeed plenty of work for us to do as we think about those types of places in our lives that are tempting to just say, it doesn't matter. It's impossible. It's worthless. So we have indeed hope in a body that is imperishable. We do have this hope. But we also have hope that our resurrected body declares the extent of God's victory. Our resurrected body declares the extent of God's victory. Let's go back again and look at verses 54 through 57. Picking up in 54 again, it says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Seems like such a familiar statement that we hear here from Isaiah. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? The resurrection of the body shows us that God did not abandon what he came for. You start to see through the incarnation, through Jesus entering into the world. This is not just him saying, I'm coming in to pull you out. He's starting to say, I will be in this world with you because this is my creation. It's mine and I'm coming back to it. And I'm going to do anything that is necessary to redeem it. The incarnation, the death, and the resurrection shows much more than Christ was a real person who's powerful enough to defeat death. Oftentimes we just think, well, that's just a signal that he's powerful. Oh, that just shows that it was real in history. And yet it means far more than those things. It starts to show us that his redemptive plan has to do with this world, has to do with this body. In fact, Jesus died and he was resurrected and he comes before his disciples and he's standing in a body. And the Apostle Paul has just made a very full argument through 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that just as Jesus was resurrected, so will you be. And all of a sudden you start to see that's the work that he's after, to redeem this body of death, to redeem this body that I think is irredeemable, this world that I think is irredeemable. God is actually after this. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? God has not just left us. God has come to overcome sin, is what he's saying. He's come to overcome sin, the condemnation of the sinner before the law of God, all the things that sin brought into the world. We stand before God condemned, and there is no way around that other than God paying the full price. This is where you can become immortal, you can become imperishable, you can become perfect as God created you to be once again. You can become in perfect fellowship with him once again. You can live the way you were meant to live. And we look at all of this and we say, this is the work that he accomplished through the resurrection. This is the work that he's going to accomplish. And it doesn't say that Jesus abandoned it. In fact, it says 
you look at sin and death and all that it brought, how would it be a victory if God was forced to abandon it all? How would it be an absolute victory? He would be looking down and saying, I can't do anything for that world that I created. It's destroyed. It's ruined. You would look in and say, did he really win? If he was forced to give it up? No, he doesn't do that. He says, that's my world. Sin is not going to take it over. Sin is not going to corrupt it. In fact, I'm going to do everything necessary to be able to turn to death and sin and say, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? There's no power that you have left. The final enemy to be defeated is death. And Jesus said, it's done. I've defeated it. And now there is a different nature to our life. We are not on death's door on the hospice care, so to speak. In fact, we have a very different outlook in life because of this verse on our resurrected bodies. Jesus is saying, it is different for you, believer. It's very different for you as you look at this world. The significance of sin being destroyed absolutely, completely, totally, there will not be one portion of God's creation that reflects sin and death anymore. As sin is like a parasite. It gets into every nook and cranny, and you look out at the world and you see just how pervasive it is. It is everywhere. In fact, if we were all to sit down and look at the broken aspects of our world and our lives and everything in it, we could come up with list after list after list after list to say there is no end to the corruption. There is no end to the brokenness of governments. There's no end to how people don't do the things they're supposed to do. There's no end to the way that friends treat friends horribly, to how spouses cheat on their own spouses, to how... Business owners act immorally. It goes on and on and on. And we can say, is it really possible? And right here, Jesus is saying, it's not only possible, it's, it's been eradicated. Sin has been defeated. Death has been defeated. In fact, the extent to which you have seen the effects of sin carry out into the world, it's mine. I'm taking it back, and I am cleaning it up. God is surely going to cast sin out of this world forever. And this reflects the sovereignty of the God that you and I read about in Scripture. When we think about the God who can move mountains, when we think about the God who can create humans from nothing, just from dirt, when he can create the whole cosmos and keep it all running properly, I mean, these are the things that non-believers look in and they just scratch their heads. They say, we don't really get it. How does it work? We're pretty smart, but we don't get it if we're honest. It is unbelievable the power of our God to enter in and do the things that he would do. He would even do simple miracles as we studied the book of Mark before Advent series. And people are looking in just on these simple miracles of restoring something like vision. Like, are you kidding? He can actually fix people's eyes? Those are just glimpses of the power of our God to restore things. And as he continues to do this work, he really means, I will take it to the fullest extent. I am sovereign over these things. I control them, and I will not let them go. 
And as the Apostle Paul says in earlier chapters of 1 Corinthians, a familiar verse, he says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That is not necessarily a disembodied state of living in which you just float around. This is the work that you can't even possibly imagine to redeem and restore this world. And it's not saying he's just taking it back to a state of, well, it just is existing. It is getting better than it was before. Heaven come down on earth, perfect fellowship with God. Living in that type of world is going to be so sweet and rich and wonderful and glorious that we are able to say, I can't even imagine the work of his redemptive power in this world as I look out at the world, but it is true. And as the Apostle Paul says, thanks be to God who has given us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has indeed declared the extent of his victory through our redempted, redeemed bodies and restored bodies, but he is um, saying even more than this here. We have hope that God's promise of a resurrected body also gives us purpose for today, as we've hinted at. It gives us, indeed, eternal purpose, valuable purpose for today. Let's look at verse 58. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. And as we think about everything that we've looked at, that the Apostle Paul is building through this passage to say, this is all true. And we start to say, I don't even really, it's almost like it causes us some pause to say, what am I supposed to do with this? It's almost too much. It's too much to comprehend this great redemptive plan that God is working out. And yet he says, be steadfast, immovable, continue in this work, abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that it's not in vain. Continue the work that you've been called to do. You know who you're supposed to be, and you know where that is leading you. Hold on to it. Hold on to it. Because the temptation is great to say, is it really true? This year comes again. Is it really true or should I look somewhere else as well? When our resurrected bodies come, we will live in perfect union with Christ. No sin, no death, empowered by the Spirit to live life completely and fully as God has intended it. This is not only a future endeavor as we're hearing here. (coughs) Excuse me. This is not just a plan to say, hold on as long as you can until Jesus comes back. This idea of, can you make it until then? Because everything is completely garbage around you. There's nothing good and redeemable about this world. Just hold on. It is all going to be made right (coughs) once Jesus comes back. And as we even think of that, diagnosis from the doctor when hospice care comes. This is not our perspective in this world to say, 
It's hopeless. In fact, as the Apostle Paul has just made this argument to say, there is absolute, complete, and total victory here. Even though it doesn't necessarily look like it, even though as the world looks in, they say the church is weak. God is weak. Where is your God? Where is he doing these things? We can look back at Scripture and say, it is absolutely true. I trust it. I believe it. I'm living in light of it. I'm going to live as those who are not without hope, but with ultimate hope, complete hope that carries me forward. So as we seek to do certain things, as we seek to form our homes, to raise our children, we're not saying that these things don't matter. They have an eternal purpose, a redemptive purpose to say, from the moment your children start to grasp the concept of their own free will, sin starts to become very, very evident. You say, the work that I'm doing to shepherd and disciple these kids matters. Your labor is not in vain here. This work is indeed very, very important. And it is something we should be willing to spend time on because we say, this is the world that God is redeeming. I'm going to spend the time there. As we think about our own jobs, as we think about our society and communities and say, is it possible to do work that will actually have any element of influence here? And I've been in some of the hardest places to work, as many of you have, and you look out and you say, what's the point? The point is that God is indeed working in and through you each and every day through your workplaces, through your homes, in your neighborhoods as you continue to do this work, as you continue to seek after God's redemptive plan, as you continue to see the things in this world and you say, those belong to God. Those people belong to God. This earth belongs to God and I'm not allowing the world around me to dictate what that looks like. In fact, I'm going to say that there is much hope to build businesses that reflect this type of mentality, not to say they're going to cut the same corners that other business leaders do, to say, what does a business look like in the kingdom of God? What do friendships look like in the kingdom of God? What does me just working as a normal employee within a very broken business look like in the kingdom of God? Those things matter. And the Apostle Paul tells us all the things that you start to do as you live in fellowship with the Spirit, as you start to turn away from the flesh and repent of those things and turn towards the Spirit, all the things that you do in this life start to matter, start to have power, to start to have significance. God is working in and through His church and in and through the world to redeem all creation. And this is not just this picture of naive optimism to say, well, everything's going to be fine. <laughs> just press on one more day. And in fact, it's actually looking out at the brokenness of the world and saying, in fact, it's just as bad as people say, if not worse. It is devastating how far sin has taken away the things that God has created at one point very, very good. As we look back at Genesis, you say, he created this. It was good. It was very, very good. It was wonderful. But we look out at the world and we say, sin is devastating. 
And in our hearts, we should learn to even hate sin to the extent of, I don't want to see it anywhere, especially not in my own heart, especially not in my own home, especially not in my own church. And it is not for our own self-righteousness that we want this, but it is for the purposes and the glory of God that we seek these things. So when we ask, how can we live with any hope in this world, we say, God has surely done it. He has defeated sin and death. And this is an absolute victory, moving to the very extents of our world. Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian, said this when he was thinking about the extents of God's sovereignty. He said, there is not a square inch of the whole of the broad terrain of human life to which Christ does not lay claim. And he goes on to say this, life on this earth is not devalued, but called into the service of God. We look out at the world around us, we look out at our own lives, and we say, is it lacking value somehow because of sin? No, it's called back to serve its maker. We are called back to serve our maker. We are called to invite others into that same redemptive work. So we're certainly not left to disdain this world, to become cynical in our hearts and mind, to say, what's the point? I'm just holding on, but we're called to say, live in light of this future reality. Live today knowing that God has already accomplished it and the the first fruits of the Spirit are beginning to work. There is indeed great hope for us here to say, brothers and sisters, your labor is not in vain. Thanks be to God who has given us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's do pray. Father God, we do thank you. Lord, there is more than we can imagine that you have accomplished on our behalf, more than we can possibly imagine on what you will bring to this world as your kingdom comes. Lord, help us to see our lives and our world and our church and our community in light of these things. Help us to trust you. Help us to turn to you, to learn to live in fellowship with you now, to encourage one another towards these types of lives, to remind one another as we think about our future, as we think about what is ahead, Lord, that we would orient our minds and our lives not under small easily achievable little goals, but we would be kingdom-minded, Lord, that we would build all of our future plans in light of the things that you have told us. Lord, I ask that you would work powerfully in our church through this. Lord, I ask that we would be able to meditate on your words, to come back to them again and again, trusting, Lord, that you have surely done this. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.